Father, as we come to your word. We thank you for it. And we pray that by the Holy Spirit working in us, you might grant us illumination. You might grant us understanding. You might show us Christ. You might show us how desperately we need him. That he would be glorified during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and we're actually going to be looking at the exact same passage, plus two verses, that we looked at last week. Um, I had asked you last week, if you remember, to consider the fact that this conversation that we're, that we're studying is probably, uh, I, I would say undoubtedly, the most famous conversation in all of human history that we're talking about. This is a conversation that took place during the Passover feast in Jerusalem between Jesus and a man, a Pharisee, named Nicodemus. And not only is this probably the most famous conversation in all all of human history, but I would also say that in terms of theological depth, in terms of, of just the, the depth of the things that we can glean from this, the, 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 the great doctrines, the great practices, the great beliefs that we can glean from, from this passage, there are few, very few passages in all of Scripture that compare to the depths of this one. If you've ever stood at an intersection where three roads converge, I mean, you can find two roads converging all over the place, right? That's just a regular intersection. But if you've ever stood at an intersection where there are three roads converging, or maybe even more than that, you know that it's a complete mess. Uh, A few years ago, Christina and I were driving through Portland, and I guess they have uh, three road intersections all over the place there. Uh, It it felt like a cruel joke as we came up to one. I thought, which one am I supposed to pick? Um... It's one of those situations, though, that forced me to proceed very carefully because it would have been very easy to make a mistake, and a mistake could have been absolutely disastrous. And it's similar with this passage that we're looking at today. There are so many truths about God, truths about man, theological, biblical truths in this passage that converge in this passage. It's worth treading through this passage very carefully. It's also worth investigating very thoroughly. And so with that said, we're actually nowhere done with, uh, with this convergence of theological roads. We're going to be studying it again next week. Um, there are many, many wonderful doctrines that come together here in a way that, that can just make your head spin. Uh, if you just blaze through this passage as fast as you can, it's easy to come away from it feeling kind of dazed and confused, like what just happened? What's, what's all the significance here? You can very easily miss all the significance that's in this passage. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10 today. And I want us to consider some of the doctrines and some of the implications from it. But today, I specifically want to draw your attention to the cause of salvation, to the cause of salvation and to its effects. 
You've got a cause of your salvation, and then you have effects. And the point that I want to make today is that salvation always produces specific effects in the life of the individual Christian. Let me say that again. Salvation always produces specific effects in the life of the individual Christian. You might say the root of salvation always produces the fruit of salvation, right? The root always produces a fruit. So let's start by, by just reading through the passage and then we'll, we'll unpack it. We're looking at John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. We read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Very, very rich passage. I, I absolutely love this. We saw last week, Nicodemus is a, a literal, historical figure, of course. He's a, he's a real person. He's a man uh, that, that represents another group, though. He, he, he represents all men. Remember, chapter 2 ended by telling us uh, he did not need anyone, Jesus did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, starting in chapter 3, now there was a man. So we see that Nicodemus is a representative figure. He's a representative figure in the sense that he believed that he had to earn his righteousness. He did not believe that salvation was a gift to be received, but that it was a reward to be earned. And so he was, in this sense, a figure that represents all of humanity's wisdom and the default view of salvation for fallen man. Think about it. Every religion in the world places requirements on those who adhere to that religion. There, there is no religion in all of the world that compares to Christianity in this sense. All these other religions have all these rules and practices that involve a person working for their salvation. That is just religiosity. We've talked about that before. We've, we've looked at some of the, the strange practices that you might find in all the religions of the world. But those practices all flow from beliefs, beliefs that you have to work for your salvation, false beliefs. That is the natural man's, the fallen natural man's wisdom, which is also the wisdom of Nicodemus, which is really just foolishness. 
See, Christianity is unlike all these other religions because the gospel isn't about what we must do as much as it is about what God has done for us. The last words Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. This is about what God has done for us in Christ. As Luther famously said, he said, quote, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. End quote. And of course, that does require a response. And we're going to get to that before we're done with this passage. We understand that there's, there's a mysterious tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But the Christian biblical understanding of salvation is not, I must do this and I must do that if I'm going to be saved. No, that is law. And when I say that that's law, I mean that is not good news. No, the salvation that we proclaim is that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified which is exactly what Romans 3.20 says. Rather, Romans 3.24, we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the doctrines, as we're we're looking through this, this passage in John, one of the doctrines that shines most brightly, most vividly in this passage is the doctrine of unconditional election unconditional election. Jesus says in verse 3, you must be born again. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. You remember the Greek word for again, the, the primary translation for that word is from above. That's how it's translated every other time in scripture. Nicodemus can't understand that. Being born from above, that makes absolutely no sense to him. So Jesus takes it a step further in verse 5, saying, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So you can't see it, you cannot enter into it, unless you're born again or from above. And this concept is completely lost on Nicodemus, who thinks that Jesus is saying something absurd. So remembering that the word that gets translated again, so born again, uh, is usually translated from above. So, but Nicodemus can't make any sense of that. Born from above, what, what does that mean? Jesus must mean crawling into my mother's womb again. I, I can't even think of what it might mean to be born from above. He has no understanding as a teacher of Israel. But Nicodemus responds as we would expect a natural man to respond. He cannot understand things that are spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So he has to think naturally. He, he responds as a, as a natural man who is ruled by his flesh, who is ruled by his sin, ruled by his pride, ruled by rebellion against God. He responds as we would expect A fallen, natural, unregenerate man to respond by thinking in terms of law. I must do this. I must do that. And if I'm I'm doing these things and I'm still not there, then I must do these things better. I must do these things more. That's just, that's law. And what do I mean? I mean, he's thinking that there, there must be something he has to do physically from his own motivation from his own uh, power and ability. 
And all he can think is that Jesus is coming up with this idea of a man who is old crawling back into his mother's womb so that he can be born a second time. And he's pointing out, that's a ridiculous idea, Jesus. But Jesus corrects Nicodemus because Jesus is not speaking physically. He's speaking spiritually. He corrects Nicodemus saying that flesh only produces flesh. He's not talking about a birth from the flesh. He's talking about a birth by the Spirit. He's speaking spiritually here. And one of the things that we saw last week is that it seems possible, if not entirely likely, that when Jesus talked about the need for a person to be born of water and the Spirit, he's referring, first of all, to one event. These aren't two separate events. The Greek makes it very clear that this is one event that we're talking about, being born of water and the Spirit. That's one event, not two. But secondly, Jesus is also referring to something that Nicodemus as a teacher of Israel, should have known from the Old Testament. That's why Jesus says in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In other words, as a teacher, there's something here that you're missing that you should know. And we saw last week that it seems extremely likely that Jesus was referring to a passage in Ezekiel 36 in which God prophesied of the new birth. It's a really important passage, and it's one that somebody like Nicodemus, somebody who is in Nicodemus's position as a Pharisee, as a teacher, should have been not only extremely familiar with, but he should have been anticipating it. He should have known that this was what was coming. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27 says this, God says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." Did you catch the references in there to water and the Spirit? He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And then he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new Spirit within you. This is one event. This is the new birth. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is how a person is saved. This is, it's spiritual, it's invisible, but this is what happens when a person is saved. It's not just something for the Jews. God draws his people from all of the nations, and he would perform a heart replacement surgery on them. And of course, we're not talking about a physical heart. We're talking about a spiritual heart. There's nothing in this passage that's referring to something physical. It's spiritual. This is how a person is saved. There's nothing natural Nothing natural about it. It's supernatural. And how many times in this passage in Ezekiel 36 do we see God say, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's all over the place in this passage because it's entirely his work. And God demonstrates that in the next chapter. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the Spirit of the Lord leads Ezekiel to a valley that's filled with dry bones. In other words, 
leads him to a graveyard, physical graveyard, a place where all these, these dead bodies are, are just decomposing, laying on top of each other. But I want you to understand this. I want you to understand this much. That valley of dry bones is a picture of you and a picture of me and every other child of Adam apart from God's redeeming work, apart from God's redeeming grace. We are spiritually dead. In verse 3, Ezekiel 37, we, we read a conversation that takes place between God and Ezekiel. Ezekiel writes this, he says, He, that is God, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. I like how he doesn't really answer the question. Can these dry, dead bones live? God, you know. I I don't know. But you know. So let's stop there and consider this. Can these dry bones that are filling this valley, can, can these dry bones live by a physical means? Can they just spring to life? Is, is, is it possible? Is there a chance that life and flesh will spontaneously generate from these dry, dead bones that are filling this valley and bring these people back to life? Is that possible physically? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, how, how could they come back to life then? Only, only if God is willing and takes action. Only God can put life in these dry bones. So they, they, they will not come to life through religion. They will only come to life through regeneration. Religion cannot save them. Religion cannot put life in them. But regeneration can. And the work of regeneration must be done entirely by God. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, Romans 9. So God isn't, isn't done illustrating how this is going to work, how this new birth is going to work. Starting in Ezekiel 37, verse 4, we read, Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. That's important. He continues, thus, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you so that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. That's Ezekiel 37, verses 4 to 6. Do you see this? Do you see what's going on here? Do you, do you understand what's happening? This is what we would call an object lesson. It's an object lesson. God is giving Ezekiel and, and us a picture of the work of the new birth. How is it done? By speaking the word of the Lord. That's what it says. Doesn't that... Bring your mind to what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
Romans 10, 14, and 17. So we continue. Ezekiel 37, verse 7. Ezekiel says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath. It's interesting to note, by the way, when it says here, there was no breath, it's interesting to note that the Hebrew word for breath is the same word that gets translated spirit. It's ruach, which we saw at the beginning of Genesis, right? When, when the spirit was hovering above the water. So keep that in mind, that the word for breath also means Spirit. He says, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. Now let's think about this for a second. These are dry bones, right? What do they need? They need moisture, right? They need water, and they need a spirit. They need a new spirit. Exactly what God had promised in the previous chapter in the prophecy of the new birth. Do you see how this all connects together? I mean, this is, this is amazing stuff. But again, you have to see that this valley of dry bones is a picture, an object lesson, that gives us a picture of humanity apart from God's sovereign, redeeming work in regeneration. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why not? Because he's dead. So, so Jesus tells Nicodemus again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Why not? Because he's dead. The question is, how can one be regenerated? How can one be born again? The same way that that valley of dry bones can be filled with life, not by man's effort, not by man's will, but by what we would call God's sovereign, effectual calling. God's sovereign, effectual calling. There are a lot of things that you might call this doctrine. You might call it predestination. You might call it election. You might say uh, chosen by God. You know, those, those all work. But there's one word that you probably say all the time, but don't realize that it actually refers to this doctrine. And that word is church. Church. Now, in English, I, I get it. In English, the word church refers to a building, or maybe it refers to the institution, or maybe even the body of believers that are gathered together. But the Greek word is composed of two words. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia, that's, that's two words. Ek is one word, which means out of or from, and a form of the word kaleo, which means called. Called. So if you wanted to translate ecclesia, literally, we wouldn't call it church. We'd call it the called out ones or the ones who are called out. Called out from what? Death. Death. 
called out of sin, called out of judgment, called out of the world, called from death to life by the sovereign, effectual calling of God. The the sovereign, effectual calling of God is a doctrine that you can actually find in every single book of the New Testament. You can also find it in the Old Testament, but it really gets uh, elaborated on and fleshed out in the New Testament. And and my idea originally was, let's look at all of them, uh, until I started realizing that that this is so abundant in the New Testament. I mean, I I hear you guys probably want to get some dinner tonight or something, so uh, for the sake of being, uh, you know, fair with our time, we're just going to glance through, um, you know, some of the epistles of the New Testament together. So so get your, your, your... Bible ready, uh, have your thumb ready to, to flip around because we're going to be all over the place because I want you to see not only the abundance of this doctrine, but friends, I, I want you to see the beauty of it. I want you to see the beauty of it. Let's start in Romans, which is the greatest of the epistles. You find this concept actually immediately in Romans. If you go to Romans chapter 1, I mean, Paul starts the letter out as he always, uh, you know, does by, by introducing himself. And then he says this in verse 1. He says, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, or called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Who called him? The one whose gospel he was saved by. God called him. And you might think, okay, well, that's just speaking about Paul because Paul is special, right? Paul is an apostle, so of course God gave him a call. But then skip down to verse 6 where he says to the people he's writing to, he says, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the sovereign, effectual calling of God. You also are called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Now, we have to immediately see something very important about this calling. It only applies to those who believe. It only applies to those who are called saints. The question that we have to ask ourselves, or, or at least kind of put on the back burner, is were the saints the only people who heard the gospel? Or were they the only ones who heard the, the outward, uh, the, the, the articulation of the gospel? Of course not. But those who, those who didn't accept the gospel, those who didn't put their faith in Christ, were not referred to as called of Jesus Christ. So we need to understand at the outset here that there are two types of calls that the Bible refers to. There's the the outward call. There's the gospel that goes forth and falls upon the ears, the physical ears of the listener. But that's not the effectual call of God. That's not the call. The, The outward call is not the call that brings life to those who are dead. It's that we're talking about an outward call, calling with the with the gospel, preaching the gospel to somebody, and it falls upon their ears. But remember what Jesus used to say? If you have ears to hear, He's not talking about physical ears, is he? He's talking about spiritual ears. Of course, everybody has ears, but not everybody who had ears, physical ears, could understand the spiritual truths that Jesus was talking about. 
That's the, the outward call is not the call that brings life to those who are dead. That's, it's an outward call, but there's also an inward call. And this is what we would call God's sovereign effectual calling. And we would say that it's effectual because it has an effect. It brings life to those who are dead. And we would say that it's sovereign because it's something that only God is capable of doing. Remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's saying many are going to hear the outward call, but few are going to hear the inward call. If you want another illustration of this, think about Lazarus. He, he, he was sick, but Jesus delayed going to him, and so Lazarus died. And Jesus calls out to him in the grave, and what happens? Lazarus comes to life. He was dead. He, he wasn't just part dead. He wasn't just sick. He wasn't just wounded. No, he was completely dead. What could Lazarus do on his own to come to life? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Only God could impart life to him, right? Romans 8. We see this again. We see this is the, the strongest doctrine in all, or the, the strongest passage in all of Scripture in terms of finding uh, clarity for this doctrine. We're familiar with Romans 8.28, right? I say it all the time. I've, I've got it memorized. I, I say it in my sleep. Uh, we talk about that verse a lot. It's a, it's a beautiful verse. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's that word again, called according to his purpose. God does not cause all things to work together for good to everyone who hears the gospel. Right? That's a privilege that is a blessing reserved for those who hear the inward call. Those who are called according to the purposes of God. Something that man in his natural, spiritually dead state will not and cannot hear. But that's not where Paul ends the discussion of this doctrine of God's sovereign effectual calling. Verses 29 and 30, he continues this line of thought. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And, though, and these whom he predestined, he also called and these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this, this thing in your bulletin, the ordo salutis, which means the order of salvation, uh, might help you understand how this all works. See, God didn't elect us because he looked down the, the tunnel of time and, and saw who would believe. Romans 3 makes clear for us who that would be. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody seeks for God. Nobody is righteous. Nobody does good. Not even one. So God's election, God's choice, was not based on something about us. It's not based on anything about us. If it was based on something about us, we'd have reason to boast. But it's not because of us. On our own, apart from God's regenerating work, none is righteous. None seeks for God. None is good. So for whom 
back to our, our, our uh, passage here in, in Romans, for whom does God cause all things to work for good? That being uh, conformity to the image of Christ. Those who are called. Those who love God and are called according to his purposes. There's that word, kaleo. Uh, and, and who's called? Those who are predestined. And those who are predestined and called are justified. See, not everybody who hears the gospel physically with their physical ears is justified, right? So obviously, this is the sovereign, inward, effectual calling of God that we're talking about here. Romans 9 fleshes this out a little more for us, illustrating this this whole concept of election with Jacob and Esau. Verses 10 and 11 say this, There was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. Calls. There it is again. Now some would say, that when you get to verse 13, um, where it says, just as it was written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Um, one argument uh, that, that once upon a time I made uh, was that Paul's talking about nations here. But we can be absolutely positive that he's not talking about nations, but that he's talking about individuals because Paul refers to the story of the individuals. Right? There, there's, there's context that we have to keep in mind here. He's, he's talking about the story of, of these two boys, Jacob and Esau, and then he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. The context never changes. So the sense in which he's speaking can't change either. God's sovereign choice had been made before the twins were born and before they had done anything good or bad as a means of illustrating God's sovereignty in election the sovereign, effectual calling of God. So what did Jacob and Esau teach us about salvation? That salvation is not because of works, but because of him who calls. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I, I know we, we got to kind of scoot here. Uh, I better start getting brief. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 29, uh, to 29 Listen to how many times Paul refers to this doctrine in this passage. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus." See, again, God hasn't chosen you because of anything about you or within you. The gospel isn't just for people who are at the right time, you know, the right place and the right time. It's not just for the able. It's not just for the powerful. It's not just for the privileged. It's not just for the intellectual. No, your election is rooted in God's sovereign, effectual choice. By his doing, Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus few more between here and there, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 1, you find it there. In love, he predestined us, right? Ephesians chapter 2, this is one of the most vivid descriptions of fallen man in all of Scripture apart from God's sovereign effectual calling. Verses 1 to 5, Ephesians chapter 2, we read, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of, uh, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I mean, this also connects back to Ezekiel chapter 37, right? It, it, it's a picture of, of this. Ezekiel 37 is a picture of this. We were dead. We were those dry bones in the valley. We had no hope because we had no life. We had no ability to respond to God because God is life, and we had no life in us. It was entirely out of mercy that he gave us life. Not out of our, our, not out of our willingness to cooperate by believing, no, it was out of mercy that he breathed his breath of life into us. Flip ahead to, to chapter 4. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So there's that word again, calling. That's God's sovereign effectual call. Colossians. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's one of the effects, by the way. We're, we're getting to those. One of the effects of salvation. God is the cause, and his sovereign effectual calling is, is the cause. One of the effects is thankfulness. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Here's a good one. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity from all eternity so there wasn't a point where God learned that we would believe because then there would be a before and after no this is from all eternity think about that I mean you can't wrap your mind around that this is before creation. This goes back into, you know, before time. Eternity passed. Think of it this way. If you have been called by God's sovereign effectual calling, number one, you've been saved. But if you've been saved, you have been known and loved by God throughout all of time. God doesn't change, right? 
God doesn't change. And so there was never a time when he changed from not knowing you or not loving you to loving you and knowing you with a father's love that is greater and deeper than anything we can wrap our minds around. There has never been a time when God did not have that love for his called out ones. Friends, there was a time when I was not in agreement at all with this doctrine of God's sovereign effectual calling. So I understand if you're not there. But as I look back now, I, I, I really can't believe I ever missed it. Because as, as you see, and, and we didn't cover it all, it's absolutely everywhere in Scripture. It is absolutely everywhere in Scripture. God's sovereign effectual calling is the cause of the new birth. Now, it's the cause, but I want to spend the rest of our time looking at the fact that there should be effects. There must be specific effects in the life of the believer. What did, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? He said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is likening the Spirit to the wind which goes where it wishes, which nobody has control over except God. It's sovereign. And the wind, Jesus says, the wind creates an effect. So the root of salvation produces the fruit of salvation. Think of, think of Ezekiel 36. God says that when he puts his spirit in someone, it causes them to observe his ordinances, to walk in his ways. So obedience is, is certainly one effect. Uh, we, we already saw that one of those effects is thankfulness. I mean, if you understand that God chose you, that he elected you, that he loved you from all of eternity, not because of what's in you, but in spite of what's in you, how can you not be thankful? How can you not be thankful? See, if we, if we have the view that God elected us because of something in us or something that we, that we did, we have a reason to boast. We have a reason to be proud of ourselves. We got the answer right while everybody else got it wrong. But understanding God's sovereign effectual calling is humbling. And it should produce thankfulness in somebody who can, who can start to understand this. He didn't call you because of how good you are. He called you because of how good he is. He called you because of how merciful he is. And that's humbling. That's humbling. We, we, we should be thankful and we should be humble. So humility is, is, is another effect. Thankfulness, humility, obedience. We can be sure that the primary effect of God's sovereign effectual calling is that the individual person will look to Christ and place all of their hope and all of their confidence for salvation in Christ. See, the reason we say by grace alone, through faith alone, there's an order there. There's an order there. We, we, because we understand that God's grace is required for us to even have faith. Faith is a gift, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And faith in Christ alone we have, why? Because of grace. Because of God's grace, his, his redeeming work, which is done out of 
grace, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it, in spite of the fact that we deserve his wrath, not his love. And the result of his work will render us as saved people the opposite of Nicodemus. The opposite of, in fact, Romans chapter 3, what we see in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.10 says this, There is none righteous, not even one. But because of God's work, and because Christ's own righteousness is taken from him, and it's transferred, it's credited to us, kind of like if you go to the bank and you make a transfer to somebody else's account, that money is transferred, it's, it's imputed to their account. Because we have been imputed Christ's own righteousness, now we can say, not there is none righteous, not even one, now of us, of the called out ones, we can say, there is none unrighteous. Not even one. By grace alone, we stand in robes of Christ's own righteousness before God. Romans 3.11 says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And Nicodemus kind of exemplifies that, doesn't he? He exemplifies human understanding because he has none. The concept of being born again, of, of being born from above, just confuses him. It's like a weight that you add to his jaw as his jaw drops, thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. He has no understanding, but that's natural man apart from God's regenerating work. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. But because of God's regenerating work, because the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, he illuminates the word of God for us. He convicts us of sin and imparts life to us so that we may now say all of the elect will understand at least the basics of Christianity. If you remember what, we, uh, what our question a few weeks ago was from the, apostle, uh, from the, um, the, the, the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, where they, they just quote the, the Apostles' Creed, that all believers know this. So, so now all of the elect will understand, all were sought by God, who opened our eyes to the truth of our need for grace, and to whom we must turn for grace. Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. But now, by God's sovereign effectual calling, all of the sheep all of his, his stray sheep who have turned aside will hear his voice and will follow him. And together they will not be useless, but they will demonstrate God's glory as a light in the darkness. All of them do good. All of them. After all, the fruit of the Spirit. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, right? Right? I mean, these are more effects of the, of the presence of the Spirit. These are more effects uh, that you could connect to, to John chapter 3. The, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all qualities that are possessed by each and every believer and which should be increasingly present in the life of everyone in whom the Spirit dwells. So, so this again. This again, it's the effects of God's sovereign effectual calling. 
But while we're all over the place, let me have you turn to, uh, to 1 Peter, since we're looking at basically every place in the New Testament uh, as briefly as we can. As we consider the sovereign, effectual calling of God, there's one more place that I would have us turn where we not only find a reiteration of the cause of our salvation, that being the sovereign, effectual calling of God, but it's another effect, and it's a very important effect. And in fact, I would say it's central to your purpose for being called. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says this. We've read all these other references from Paul, right? It's good to know what Peter says, too. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why were you chosen? Why did God call you? For what purpose? So that you, not just me, as, as the one who gets up here every week, but every one of us, every one of us who, who, who is in this chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, that all of us, who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, may proclaim his excellencies. Now, given what the scriptures very clearly teach about the cause of salvation, I want to leave you with one final thought on this. And that's this. Because God is sovereign over election, and because he has ordained that the proclamation of the gospel would be the means that God would use to issue his sovereign effectual calling. In other words, he has, he has ordained that uh, along with the outward call to those whom he has chosen, it will be accompanied by the inward call. So if you understand all this, you also understand that you can never fail at evangelism. You can never fail at evangelism. It, it, it's, it's impossible because the results aren't in your hands. So it's impossible for you to say that you failed because somebody didn't believe. No, if you share the gospel faithfully, if you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, it is impossible for you to fail because God has not only ordained the ends, he has also ordained the means to the ends. That is to say that if God has ordained from all of eternity that someone will come to salvation through the sovereign effectual calling of God, he has also ordained that it would happen through somebody proclaiming the excellencies of God to that person. Somebody sharing the gospel with that person. See, friends, if God, if God can turn the king's heart whichever way he likes, and Scripture specifically tells us that he can do that, then he can turn your neighbor's heart too. And he can turn your kids' hearts too. But they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? See, friends, religion cannot save you. Religion couldn't save Nicodemus. And if religion couldn't save Nicodemus, it cannot save anyone. 
But what religion cannot do, regeneration can do. With religion, your, your behavior changes because a, you know, a person feels like they have to, to do this and do that to be accepted, and it's all driven by their own efforts. It's driven by the flesh. But in regeneration, your behavior changes because you are accepted. Not so that you'll be accepted, but because God has already accepted you. And it's empowered not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. With religion, you might be able to change externally. We call that behavior modification. But with regeneration, the change is internal. Your motivations are completely different. Your motivation isn't to fit in with man. Your motivation is to please God. And you, and you desire to do it because of the new birth. Religion can teach you to hate sin because you want to avoid the consequences. But regeneration causes a person to hate sin because they love the God who hates sin. See, religion can only put you on a treadmill of works. It can only put you on a treadmill of works in which at, at best, at best, you rely on God and the works of the flesh. But with regeneration, your eyes are opened to look to Christ and to see that He has fulfilled all that God demands from the law on your behalf and that He bore your sin as your substitute. And so you know that any good works that you do don't flow to your salvation, rather they flow from your salvation. You understand that you're not saved by your own works, but that you work because you're saved. And friends, if you have never, if you've never come to Jesus in faith, if you have never put your hope for salvation in him, but you hear him calling you today, understand this. The doctrine of sovereign election or, or God's sovereign effectual calling does not mean that the door is closed for everybody. It means that when the door is open, it's because God has opened it. And if you see that door open and you see what is so beautiful on the other side of that door, you can't help but go. Because you're drawn to the most wonderful, most beautiful, most, most pleasurable thing imaginable. And that is life in Christ. As you consider the cause of your salvation, friends, my prayer, my hope for you would be that the effects of this great salvation we've been given would be abundant in your lives, increasing in your lives, obvious in your lives. Your life in Christ, your, your salvation in Christ is an amazing, amazing gift. Use it. Use it for the glory of Christ. That's what you were made for. That's why you we're called. That's the purpose that God has set before you. And by his spirit, he empowers you to walk in that purpose. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for the wonderful truths that we glean from it. Father, it is truly humbling to see that our position in Christ is not because of us. It's not because of anything that we did. It's because somebody shared the gospel with us outwardly, and you brought us to life inwardly 
through the power of your spirit. You convicted us of sin. You showed us the glory of Christ. You showed us our need for Christ. You showed us that we were lost without him. And you drew us to him. What an amazing gift. So we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to be a thankful people. People who are content in all things because we understand that what we have is all a gift. A gift that we could never earn. In fact, a gift that is the exact opposite of what we did earn. Your wrath. But you took our sin and you put it on Jesus. And you took his righteousness and you put it on us. So that even the most wretched and ungodly among us could belong to you. Could could experience your love. Could bring glory to you in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that as we consider the cause of our salvation, that these effects would be overflowing in our lives. Not for our glory. Not that the world may say what, a, what good people we are. But that Christ would be glorified. That the world would say what a good and gracious and mighty God they serve. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.